From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, is in the house. If you've got a question for Colin, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 1- 205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, spinning the dials behind the glass, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window. And it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, the aforementioned Vice President of Theology here at EWTN, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? Doing good and, and wondering whether I'm in, in Saskatchewan or in Alabama. The it's way a little chilly. A little it's bit supposed chilly to warm back up over the weekend. Any That'll big plans nice. for the weekend? No, no, no. We have a, we have a daughter off at a camp hike overnight tonight. Oh, so there you so. go. Ooh, that'll be a little nippy. It'll be a little nippy, so we'll see how that turns out when she gets home tomorrow. <laughs> have an email here from Sabeth, and she says, Hello, I went to a 6 a.m. All Saints Day Mass. There was no homily. I thought with a holy day of obligation, a homily would be required for all Masses, should a homily have been given. A homily is, is not technically required, although obviously on the greater masses, the Sunday masses and the Holy Days of Obligation, it is uh, completely appropriate. And most priests will do some kind of a homily, uh, even if it's brief, even on a weekday. Uh, but no, I don't think it is required uh, anywhere. Um, you can always, of course, uh, get online and... Uh, Maybe find out what the saints have said about it. A very good place to do that would be on a website that has the Liturgy of the Hours where you can read the readings of the day. Uh, and those are very often a saint commenting on the feast of the day or on the event described in the scripture of the day. Uh, so uh, you need not deprive yourself of growing in the faith uh, even though you had no homily on a solemnity. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Wide-open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. Zach writes in, I don't understand where we find penance in Scripture. In the Bible, Jesus forgives but does not ask anything from us. Why Why do our priests give penance? It's when when you're trying to resolve all of the uh, different comments made by our Lord in the Gospels, for example. Uh, he said, justice was not done away with, it's perfected in charity. 
you could take the position that, well, the law is no more, or that there's a way to reconcile the obligations of the law with the obligations of charity. And so the idea that there is, uh, is a penance for us comes from the fact that we, we, by our sinfulness, whether sins directly against God or, or indirectly by violating the commandments toward our neighbor, those sins all have an element of justice to them. And so it is requires that in justice we restore what has been taken from the other person. Maybe their good name, maybe their belongings, maybe their retirement fund, if you've you know, ripped off from you know, hundreds of people's retirement accounts or something like this. And so whatever it is, there is that element of justice. And so penance is an element of justice. Many times it's easy to think, well, I did something earlier in my life. I can't repay it. Where's the person? How do I get it back? How do I resolve it? You know, maybe it was a criminal act even, uh, whether minor or greater. Do I, do I turn myself in? Do I publicly approach them? Well, those are the kinds of cases where there's no possibility of that doing that self-restoration or, or, of justice. But then you can, do, you can do that to show your, your goodwill. You can do it in other ways. And so the penance which the church does uh, requires of, of Catholics, uh, the penance which the priest requires in the, in the confessional, all of these things are showing our goodwill even where it is practically impossible to restore the element of justice. And in this way, we do our part. The Lord does his part. He, can only, he and he alone could restore the bond of friendship between the Father and us. We can do something to restore justice insofar as in, it's in our powers. And that's what penance uh, serves to do. It's a reparation for our sins insofar as we are able to do so. And knowing, of course, that the, the greater debt, the debt to God, has been taken care of by our Lord through our act of, of uh, reconciliation with him. 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Steve simply wants to know, should the Bible be taken literally? The Church says it should be taken literally, but what is literally? Uh, for, for some theologies, literally means that you take the words as we would understand them today, or maybe we have the advantage of a lexicon, and we go back and we look at the Hebrew and the Greek, and we try to resolve it. That's actually consistent with what the Church teaches as well, in that the literal meaning is that intended by the author. So we have to go to each of the books and see what, what are the, what's the subject matter, who was the author, it could be a tradition like is generally agreed the, the first five books are, whether the Jewish tradition which says it's written down by Moses or written down after a period of time handed down orally. However, it came to be codified in a book. Uh, we have to get at what was the intention, what was being said there and, and why and what, what, what were they trying to, to mean. We're often conceiving things only in our 21st century mindset and it's very hard to get back into the mindset of others. What we do have, however, as Catholics, is we have an apostolic tradition. The fathers of the church said things on most of the sacred scriptures. 
Most of the teachings which come down to us from that era consist of things universally believed and taught in that in, in the early centuries, and therefore we are being asked to believe them as well. And so in, in there we find the meaning of sacred scripture, the meaning of those things which may have been taught orally and never written down. And St. Paul alludes to this, that you know he wrote things, but he also t- just simply taught things. And so the advantage as a Catholic is we don't have to have a wall of books with a lexicon in Hebrew and Greek and Chaldee, which some of the texts are uh, derived from. We don't have to do that. We can do that to plumb into it as a study ourselves, but we have the church to give us the broad outlines of what came down from Christ, who was the only and unique interpreter of what came before him. As uh, I believe it was St. Uh, Augustine said that the, the, the new was, uh, was foreshadowed in the old, and the, and the old is revealed in the new. And so only the church can really fully encompass the meaning of both canons of Scripture, the Old and the New Testament. And so that tradition of the church is the place that we look for when human assets and libraries and everything are incapable of us getting to it. And that's the great advantage of being a Catholic on this point of understanding the literal meaning, in quotes, of Scripture. We're just getting started on a Friday edition of EWTN's Open Line. We are giving you unfettered access to a professional uh, theologian, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Uh, If you'd like to be part of the program, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll... Here from David in Livonia, Michigan, and we've got plenty of time and a couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. 2985. And you can always send us that email. The email address is openline at ewtn.com. That's openline, all one word, at ewtn.com. And just put something like Colin or Friday in the subject line, and we will get it to the appropriate location. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. EWTN Publishing has a new offering for the month of November, Rejoicing in Our Hope, Meditations for the Advent and Christmas Seasons by Bishop Robert Baker. 
Uh, Bishop Baker shares stories and reflections on sacred scripture, the saints, popes, and other famous individuals that provide hope and inspiration for the Advent and Christmas seasons. This brief, power-packed meditation includes penetrating daily questions for reflection and action. They also offer a prayer for each day while lighting the Advent or Christmas or Christ candle. And through Bishop Baker's inspiring words of wisdom, you will receive time-tested ways of fruitfully preparing for Advent, and you'll also learn the prescription to keep going and the secret to finding joy, one tangible way to help overcome the fear of death, and much, much more. Rejoicing in our hope, Meditations for the Advent and Christmas Seasons by Bishop Robert J. Baker, available at EWTNRC.com, by Catholic Shop, EWTNRC.com. First up today is David in Livonia, Michigan. He wins the Ultimate Patience Award today for uh, hanging on since uh, before the program began. He's listening on Ave Maria Radio. David, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. Uh, when I read uh, priests' and bishops' statements on welcoming the immigrant, mm-hmm. what I find disappointing is that, as you know, this country is under an influx of fentanyl coming into our country at the southern border illegally human traffickers, and a host of other problems. So the idea of welcoming the strangers, is that applied to people that are here illegally? Is that the question? Yes. Okay. Um, Well, you have to realize that not everything is necessarily spoken of in every discussion of the subject matter. If we go to Catholic teaching, you 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 have a number of principles that are at work there. One of it, which which uh, the Catechism as well as the Compendium of Social Teaching of the Church talk about, is the universal destination of goods, so that the earth and all of its good and the distribution of the goods is necessary for living, in some sense belongs to everybody because they're God's gift to mankind. But that doesn't mean that it can't be, uh, that it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, steward, if you will, stewarded. And so the church accepts that, yes, in order to manage those goods, things are privatized. The, the, the church's longstanding upholding of private property is one way that this is done, that things are, are properly provided for and cared for because, by, by the fact that some people have ownership, and in quotes, in other words, they're stewarding a certain portion of, of God's gift to us, and that's, that's the way that that is done. Uh, I think, if anything, communism and social si- socialism-like systems have demonstrated the fallacy that this can happen with everybody owning everything. So that's one. Uh, the universal destination of goods is one principle, and the fact that individuals, in, indeed, you could say societies, are given control over a portion of that goods to manage them uh, well uh, is another element of that. Now, when you start talking about the issue of immigration, you have multiple and very complex situations going on. On the one, you have people who are distressed. Some are fleeing persecution. Others are fleeing, you know, uh, rampant criminality. Granted, this is the fault of those governments and so on. And they show up on our doorstep like the poor man on the doorstep of, of the of the rich man Lazarus in, in the rich man in the parable in the Gospel of Luke, and we can ignore them or we can help provide for them. 
does that mean that the borders should be open to everybody and all comers? And the answer to that is no. And the church recognizes that nations have the right to make laws and to control the immigration that is both, and that control is both for the good of those people who are coming in and the good, the good of those who are already here. And the trouble is, politicians must make those decisions. And we have in our country, in many countries of the world, the two polarities primarily manifested. That is, nobody gets in and everybody gets in. The truth, as some politicians see, is that it needs to be regulated in such a way that criminals, human traffickers, murderers, rapists, terrorists, drug runners, all of these things can't get in and that the truly needy can. That's a function of government to do. And right now our system is clearly broken. So I think the bishops do say those kinds of things at different times. But I think in general, because of the volumes of people, they do mention the element of the mercy and the generosity towards those who are truly needy not towards criminals, fentanyl carriers, drug runners, and others. Uh, and so that's, that's where government must play its part. And that is unfortunately where politics gets involved and all of the, uh, all of the uh, rhetoric of politics and so on. But the church doesn't give a black and white solution. It gives these moral principles, which then prudent people should try to apply in their decisions regarding uh, questions like immigration, migrancy, and so on. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Here's an email that will interest you. It's from Kieran, and he says, How do I explain apostolic succession to my Protestant friend who believes that succession ended when the apostles died? Well, if he believes that, and he must believe it based on the Bible, I'm not sure how he could come to that conclusion. Uh, the Bible records the first century. It records the lives of the apostles, the acts of the apostles, the gospels, of course, the, the life of Christ, the writings of those who are known as apostles in the first century, after which uh, there is radio silence in Scripture. Uh, so where are you going to look for that information? Where are we all then just thrown into one big soup after that without leadership, without guides, without any kind of criteria? At the top of the show, I mentioned the criteria for reading Scripture according to its literal sense, which is its primary sense. I also mentioned the tradition by which we can properly understand what was understood in the early church, early church about that. One thing that is clear in the early church is that among the divergent views of who Christ was and what Christ was, God, man, or some complicated mix of them, there were certain places and certain people in the, in the world who understood that appropriately and the way all Catholics, Orthodox, and mainstream Protestants understand that today for the most part, even though they may not get some of the, the niceties of, of the, the formulation of, you know, uh, one person, two natures, uh, correctly. So the trouble is that the reality of what Christ established is present in the world. We see that in the New Testament, in the, uh, the appointment of the apostles. Christ specifically said to the one standing there at the ascension, 
that he would be with them until the end, end of the age. Uh, He said in the Uh, He said at the Last Supper that he would send the Holy Spirit to lead them to all truth. Did the apostles have all truth? All that they knew was true, but did they have all truth at the end of their own lives in that first century? There are many things in Scripture that Christ promised that were to the church that were not fulfilled in the first century. So where is the church in whom these promises adhere today? And I would say it would be in the Catholic Church primarily and also in those churches that have the apostolic tradition and the apostolic authority of the bishops, such as the Orthodox churches do, who carry on that, the tradition of the first millennium in theology and in belief. And so that's where you, have, you will find that, and primarily in the Catholic because it has the successor of Peter. So I think everything to understand it is in the New Testament and in common sense. If Christ did not establish something permanent, then I would say that's a good argument that he wasn't who he said he was, God. He couldn't, if Christ needed to have someone come along in 1,500 years or 1,800 years or 1,900 years or 2,000 years and straight, straighten up the, the Christian faith that he left, then he didn't do a very good job of it, and he wasn't God. The fact of it is he did a very good job of it, and that church is still here despite the persecutions and the efforts of governments and even its own, it's the bad behavior of Catholics and even prelates, that church is still here, and it's still a reflection of the Church of the New Testament. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Ellen is in Council Bluffs, Iowa, another first-time caller listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Ellen, you're on with Colin Donovan. Uh, thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. I, I um, don't know if you got this question yesterday, or, but uh, with this being the month for this uh, Souls in Purgatory, mm-hmm. I was wondering if... Um, I thought last year we could say uh, prayers for them, you know, go to church and do everything prescribed, Mm -hmm. uh, and and get plenary indulgences all month Mm -hmm. long. Yeah. Uh, Is that still on this year, or was that just a one-time thing, and yesterday was the only day? Well, I haven't heard that that element of it was continued. I think the, the tradition is the first through the eighth. Well, no, there was something last year. No, last year, year there was, was, right, but I'm just right. saying the overarching tradition has always right. been the first so, through the eighth. So that was that was a specific concession, but there is the general law of the Church. And so in the uh, Incaridian or collection of indulgences, which the Church puts out and updates periodically— uh, there is uh, the during the first eight days of November, you can by various works such as going to a seminary, a cemetery. Cemetery might uh, do better than a seminary for this old seminarian joke. <laughs> <laughs> by going to a, a cemetery and saying prayers for the dead, and for those who are sick and not ambulatory and can't do that, uh, they should they can offer their sufferings uh, and they can. Uh, say prayers. Usually for plenary indulgence, they're the same uh, in all cases. That is, that you do the work involved. This would be the going to the cemetery and, and, and praying for the dead, visiting the cemetery, visiting their graves. 
Uh, it would be to say prayers for the intentions of the Holy Father. So you say prayers for the intentions of Pope Francis. And uh, it would be to receive Holy Communion, if not on that day, then certainly in some few days before and after, and to go to confession sometime within 20 days before or after of doing the thing. So those those last three things, the, the prayers for the Pope, the confession and communion, are the general norms for a plenary indulgence, and the specific work is during those eight days to somehow honor and pray for the poor souls, uh, whether you're able to go to a cemetery or do something uh, equivalently for in, in, in place of that. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family, Pox at Bonham Radio, serving Albany, Saratoga Springs, Hudson, Esperance, and Cherry Valley, New York, is celebrating their 13th anniversary as an EWTN affiliate. Congratulations to Tom and Laura Throkeld and their whole team at WOPG AM and FM from your friends here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Emma wants to know, what is the great apostasy? The great apostasy, by general uh, opinion, at some point in history, the overwhelming numbers, if even a majority, most likely, of Christians in that day uh, will apostatize from Christ. That means they won't become heretics, they won't just believe in error. They don't become just schismatics, which means that they're not in union with Christ's church, but they apostatize, which means they reject who Christ is. And this is previewed in the letters of John, where he talks about the Antichrist, and he uses as his, uh, uh, as his example that it does not believe in the Father and in the Son. In other words, the, the Christian distinction of God as three persons and the second person becoming man will be rejected by the Antichrist and meet that influence in the world. We don't know whether that comes before, or, but it's in, certainly in connection with the great apostasy. So that time is out in the future. And in my own view, just my own speculative view, what is required first is the, the unity of Christians and the conversion of the Jews. Uh, and we are a long way from those, although God could change that timetable at his will. Mark wants to know, what does justification by faith and works really mean? It means that involved in our salvation is not simply the presence of supernatural faith, but also the presence of supernatural charity and the presence of supernatural hope. First of all, faith as a gift is a gift. As defined by the Catholic Church, as opposed to other theologies, faith is not simply our work of believing by the help of grace in God. 
It is actual gift that is communicated by Christ through the mystical body of Christ, the church, in baptism. We arrive at that, at that doorstep by the credibility of the gospel, the credibility of Christ. And so this is one way which scandals within the church wound the possibility of making conversions because it church looks uncredible, <laughs> you know, uh, on, the ba- on the grounds of its own behavior and actions by Catholics. So what has to happen then is that coming to the church, the grace of baptism infuse, conforms the person to Christ dying and resurrected and infuses into their soul faith, hope, and charity. Now some would say, well, faith is enough. The church says no, because if you have faith, you have hope. In other words, you believe in the power of God to not just save you, but to save others. The power of God to maintain you in grace until your last breath, so that you persevere in grace to the end, as Paul prayed that he hoped that he would do it, uh, you know, and not become, you know, not be the one to get in through the door, as it were. And it means you have charity, which means you love God and you love your neighbor. So works in that case does not mean legal works as in the Pharisaical understanding of that, as, uh, as understood by the Pharisees with their 616 laws or somewhere about that. It means that charity will be manifested through external acts. If charity is faith, hope, and charity are not manifested through external acts, what good is it? Which is why St. James, without, you know, faith without works or faith without charity is dead. It's not saving. So that's what the church means. We receive gift as uh, faith as a gift at our baptism. We must guard it throughout our life, persevering in hope that God can indeed save us uh, and we can complete this journey in him and persevering in charity by loving God and neighbor or repenting from that. Uh, when we aren't able to live up to the standards of Christ, which is why very early on in the history of the church, penance, which we talked about earlier, was called the second baptism because human beings, being human beings and overcome, trying to overcome the r- removal of the penalty of original sin but still keeping the scars of original sin inevitably fail, but they should not lose hope. They can rise again through the second baptism, the sacrament of reconciliation. And so Christ not only gave us all the teaching and the leadership that is necessary to perpetuate the church to the end, but the sacraments that will help not only the church perpetuate, but to perpetuate our life of faith, hope, and charity until we're at death's door and we meet the Lord. So that's why faith is not enough. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Gary is a first-time listener in Holly, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Gary, you're on with Colin Donovan. Okay, Mr. Donovan, uh, thanks for your program. This is new to me. Uh, Number one, in reading the Word of God, uh, there's different Bible translations. Um, in 1600 came the King James. Do you, do, you, do you use the Latin, or what translation do you use? Uh, the United States, we have a couple to choose from. The American bishops have the uh, New American Bible, Revised Translation, which was an updating of a version from 
from uh, the late 20th century. And uh, the RSV Catholic edition is widely used. The Jerusalem Bible is widely used. Uh, But for Catholics, as I explained earlier in the show, the point is not that we have a perfect text because there is no perfect translation. They're all human efforts to understand the meaning of the Greek and the Hebrew and convey that meaning correctly. That's why translations used by Catholics are under control of the church, not to keep people from reading the Bible, but that what they read will not mislead them in understanding uh, what the text is actually saying. So the church has, from the very beginning, from St. Jerome going to, uh, to Jerusalem and living in Bethlehem, uh, over the course of a number of years to get guidance from the rabbis, to get, uh, to get guidance from Christians living in those lands who spoke the languages of the day, uh, to give the Latin translation. So the church highly prizes that effort of Jerome, and it is a sort of a keystone or a touchstone uh, that we do indeed look to. The, uh, uh, the Latin Vulgate, as it's called, uh, itself periodically updated, because scholars are always finding, um, you know, new codices. In a way, the, the Bible as we have it today is a work of archaeology in the sense that various copies from different centuries, most of them from the 300s and later, have been found, and it's not always completely, and so the translations have been updated as, as new information comes as to maybe what was this word precisely and, you know, a copyist, it's all hand copied. You know, what did maybe the copy, copying error gets transmitted along in one line of transmission. You know, in one part of the Christian world, you may have one view and on another because of a copyist error or even inserting his own thinking into what the text said. So all of those things play out, and if left to themselves, you could be in very disparate paths regarding what the Bible means. That's why the the church has provides a great advantage, passing on not only the Vulgate, which goes back to the four to around four hundred, but also by being the supervisor, as you will, of translations from the original languages Hebrew and Greek today, uh, and that gives the Catholic an assurance that. There is some approximation very highly likely uh, to the original Bible uh, as written by the authors, since that's what the revealed world is, where it is. None of our translations or even any of the copyist texts that we have are the original Bibles. Those are somewhere lost in antiquity because the Bible is that which God inspired to be written down or transmitted, as it was perhaps orally in, in many places uh, uh uh, prior to uh, prior to uh, Israel's return from Babylon. And so all of those historical issues have to be overcome by somebody. And for us as Catholics, the church is that somebody who can know what the scripture means or at least know what translations may be misleading uh, and try to keep them as faithful to uh, what God has inspired to each of the authors in the time in which he inspired them. Thanks, Gary. We appreciate the call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Lynn is a first-time caller in Windsor Locks, Connecticut, uh, listening on TuneIn Radio. Lynn, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, how are you? 
I have a question about the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, verse 2, which mm-hmm. says, No bastard shall enter the assembly of the Lord, even though, even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And um, does that feel bad today? Um, <laughs> no. I'm scared because I found out that I was, I was later and I found out. Yeah. Well, uh, you can go to the Acts of the Apostles and you read about the Council of Jerusalem where it prescribed the limited number of cultic laws that were given to the Jews that would apply to Christians. And so most of them are not. Most of them are not. The reason being that as St. Paul tells us, the law was a tutor. It was preparing the Jewish people as to the nature of what righteous behavior was in view of the gospel and grace, which would actually give us righteous behavior if we surrender to the impulses of grace. And so none of those things apply. None of those things continued over into the new covenant and so that is nothing to worry about. There has been a tradition in the formation of the priests, however, that illegitimacy was an impediment to uh, ordination. But I don't think that's generally observed today. The logic was the church has to some extent practically conform itself to the society in which it's in. And the view of illegitimacy today is quite different than it was in our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, much less our, less our 16th grandparents. And so those were, those were norms for the common good from that time, and we simply don't look at it in quite that way. And it doesn't have the, um, it doesn't have the weight that uh, it does. It did in those days. The the other element of this, and this is a very important one, and a distinction between, or maybe even one of the blessings of the of, of Christ's ministry and uh, our redemption. It was foretold, I think it was the prophet Ezekiel, who said that that would the children eat uh, unripe grapes, and or the father eats unripe grapes, and the children are the ones who would you know, cringe or re- react to them. This principle that sin and its guilt passed on. But it's, he goes on, when the Messiah comes, no longer will this be true. Each man shall be held accountable for his own sins, so that if he remains if faithful till death, or till death, he will be saved. If he falls away, then he will pay for his sins. On the other hand, if an evil man converts even at the end, his, he will be saved. In other words, in a very strict sense, since Christ came, we are responsible only for our own sins. There's no such thing as ancestral sin passed along in the Christian dispensation uh, as it was to teach something about sin. Now, that doesn't mean that children don't inherit the bad sociology of their parents, the bad upbringing, even the influence of their genetically, 
on their dispositions, their emotions, their temperament, their proneness to uh, addictions, and so on. But those are all involuntary, too, and our culpability will depend upon the degree of voluntariness. In other words, the degree of our own will acting in those things, not what we inherited genetically or by our upbringing from our parents. We will be responsible to the extent that we are individually morally responsible for our behavior. Does that give you some peace, Lynn? Yes, it does. I'm glad. Thank you very much for the phone We are indeed. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Jan is in northern New Jersey listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jan, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. Um, My question is, if a child of four, while awake, Mm -hmm. um, sees uh, a relative or very close friend that recently died, and the 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 person that died is not does not say anything. Would this? Well, first of all, why would God allow this? And then. Would it be um, most likely that this person would be in heaven or purgatory? Or could it be that um, an evil spirit is coming to this child in mm-hmm. the form of this recently deceased person? Okay. Um, well, first of all, you have to determine whether it's factual. Uh, the, just because the child states it doesn't mean that it is. Their imaginations are very great. Um, it could be that. If, if it's something that happened, usually there are indications of it. So, for instance, when the saints appear to individuals, uh, there are stories of, uh, of children on their deathbed. And uh, I remember a, a famous uh, a case which uh, I encountered first when I was studying in Rome of a, a young boy, Brian, Uh, wasn't a Catholic, and he was sick. And uh, Catholic friends of the parents started a novena to Padre Pio. And this boy kept, you know, saying he saw Padre Pio at the end of his bed. Or he didn't say that because he didn't know who this was, and the parents wouldn't have known either. But he saw this man in a brown dress. And after a period of time, you know, he the, the little boy was getting more happy and not more morose and distressed about the fact that he was going to die because of his conversations with this man in the brown dress. And then he happened at the very end of this experience before he passed away, happened to his eyes light on somebody's Padre Pio car. That's the man. So God does this. God permits sometimes that a person comes back from purgatory to ask prayers uh, there are stories of this even to ask that a certain debt be repaid or something be restored to someone because, you know, that will, that will you know, accomplish, speed their, their purification. So God can allow this. If it's from heaven, I think the peace, the calm, the joy, you can think of the children of Fatima and the presence of Our Lady, although her presence is unique, uh, hers and her son's. Uh, but you would think there would be some indications, whereas from the other direction, uh, there might be some negative indications of that as well. So if it's true, I, th- I think there's no request for prayer or anything. Uh, it, it might be to comfort the child if he's been concerned about the death of, 
of this person. Um, this is assuming it's not his imagination, of course. Um, so that would that would be my guess on it, but that's certainly not any kind of uh, uh, official investigation, but speculation based on the facts that you're aware of. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We can probably still squeeze your phone call in if you give us a call right now at 833-288-3986. Just a reminder to fall back this weekend. Daylight Savings Time ends at 3 a.m. Eastern Time on Sunday morning. So be sure to set your clock back before you go to bed Saturday night and enjoy that extra hour of rest. Um, Katie wants to know, how are communion services supposed to look and sound? Well, there is um, uh, there is a booklet, uh, The Rite of Holy Communion Outside of the Mass, which includes a number of things, which, including benediction services and so on. But basically, a liturgy of the Word, skipping to the Rite of Communion, is one form very typically used in parishes. Uh, there is actually a booklet used in parishes for, um, for services within the absence of a priest. And so that will be some kind of an entrance, some kind of it. There can even be a, a little bit of a homily, although you wouldn't necessarily call it a homily. It would be a talk. Those are best done if maybe the pastor, if he can't be there, to write, write something out for the person to, or the person is competent uh, to do it. The, the risk is always in that case that the person is not competent <laughs> to give a little talk on the scripture and goes off on some personal tangent of theirs. Um, so that's basically what it is. A liturgy of the words similar to what we would use in the Mass, some variation on that. And then uh, going to the rite of communion, usually beginning with uh, the Our Father and then um, and then into the rite of communion. And this is one of the cases where the, where the, if the minister is not a, the minister of communion is not a deacon or priest, they can even self-communicate, which is uh, otherwise generally not possible. So that would be, uh, that would be an instance of that. 833-288-EWTN. Karen would like to know, what are the advantages of adoration sitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament? Well, the advantage is, is that we grow in faith because, you know, we, we can pray in our room, we can pray in nature, there are many places we can pray. But if we go to the church, to the parish church, or to a chapel of a religious house or something like this, and we park before the Blessed Sacrament, uh, we're there because we believe Jesus is there. And that's an act of faith. And so it grows our faith. And it's not that the Lord cannot give us graces and uh, gifts in prayer and so on elsewhere, but that this way it's sort of expanding, I would say. You're opening, you know, you're making yourself more transparent to his action, desiring it, seeking it, and you've made the effort to come there. So I think it's in our disposition. Uh, God is everywhere, but in the tabernacle, Christ is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so in, in believing what he said in John 6, in believing what he said at the Ascension that he would be with the church until the end of time, in believing that the Eucharist as the fruit of the sacrifice of the Mass uh, perpetuates the presence of Christ on earth until he comes again, we're, all, we're making an act of faith in those truths, especially uh, that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord. 
Uh, so it's it's stretching our faith and allowing the Lord to, to bless us with the graces that we need. Bo writes in, why did everyone before Noah live for so long? Well, assuming we are accurately interpreting uh, how that is um, being recounted, it's, you know, people have tried speculation on that. Um, I, I've heard an explanation that the you know, one of the reasons that longevity decreased was uh, the degree of intermarriage and tribalism and so on. Uh, that could be part of the, of the results of the fall. Um, I, I think probably a scientist would question the accuracy of those numbers. I think we just have to say that we don't know what they're trying to say. Uh, is this literalism in the strict sense, or is this making a point that God punishes for sinfulness, and one of the punishments of that uh, is to withdraw his protection uh, from our lives. Uh, there's a, a, a little work, I forget what the exact title is, by St. Alphonsus Liguori regarding calamities in the, in, that occur in the world. Said the, they, he says they occur because of sin, that God is... is ready to extend his protection and his care to those who ask and to seek it. But when, he, when we don't ask and we don't seek it, then he doesn't extend it. It sort of blocks that in a way. Uh, and as a result, calamities and, and suffering occurs. On natural calamities. On natural calamities. There you go. It's right in the title and the context <laughs> I was remembering it. So... So that, that is part of it, is part of the designs and the providence of God that although suffering can be for the well-being of the individual, for their conversion, it's sometimes given as punishment, it's sometimes given for greater growth as it was in the saints who accept suffering with the right attitude and, and grow closer to God as, as a result of it. But often or not, it's received only in a purely human and material way as a calamity for which we complain and seek relief and don't uh, try to look at it from the point of view of God. On behalf of our host, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, our producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it Monday with Father John Tregilio. Uh, taking your general apologetics questions. Father Wade Menezes talking faith, family, and fellowship on Tuesday. Father Mitch on Wednesday. Father Brian Milady on Thursday. And Colin will be back with us next Friday on Open Line. Thanks for a great week. Have a great weekend, and God bless.